Share Radio's thought for this week is called Excess Debt is Not the Answer. And it starts with a quotation from Thomas Jefferson. I sincerely believe that banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies, and that the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity under the name of funding is but swindling futurity on a large scale. The past 70 years have seen remarkable progress in so many areas, but they have also been accompanied by a growing addiction to debt. For the public sector, it's an international scourge, and it is extraordinary that even with the UK national debt now standing at 86% of GDP, Liz Truss is able to claim the second lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7. It's an awful indictment of democratic capitalism as we currently operate it, that we leave such a massive burden for our children and grandchildren to shoulder in the decades to come. The 2008 financial crash blew a massive hole in corporate debt in 2009, resulting in a huge transfer of debt to the public sector in order to save the banking system. However, the personal sector has continued to borrow at a massive rate as interest rates fell to unprecedented lows and the Economic Research Council has now laid bare the crisis facing personal disposable incomes and the UK property market. The truth is that we have lost connection with the disciplines which should govern the use of debt. A bit like the roadrunner who has just lost touch with the cliff edge, there is no longer any solid ground on which we can land. So anticipate a painful readjustment as markets fall. I recall a capital economic seminar at which the transfer of huge quantities of corporate debt to the public sector was discussed shortly after the banking bailout which followed 20 years of excess leverage in the financial system. In my view, and as I discussed on air with market maker Brian Winterflood on the 9th of December 2014, this was directly related to the introduction of dual capacity, the process whereby the roles of principal and agent become hopelessly entangled. Since the financial crash, Business has been much more disciplined in its use of debt, assisted by much tougher regulation. The personal sector adjustments at that time were comparatively minor, and house prices continued to soar in value as interest rates collapsed to unprecedented levels. In a world in which supply is boosted by technology and global mobility, while in so many areas demand has become virtual and was demonetized as a result of online access. Traditional monetary economics has had to fight hard to stop deflation taking hold. As interest rates fell, so did anticipated returns, therefore pushing asset prices ever higher. The main beneficiary, however, was property prices, not stock markets, which have remained broadly stable over the past 20 years, apart from the sudden plunge and recovery during the financial crisis itself. Lower interest rates and increased loan-to-value ratios pushed up the prices that home buyers were prepared to pay, 
The scope for major shocks as a result of a return to traditional interest rates has therefore become higher year by year. The Economic Research Council has laid this out in graphic detail in their report on mortgage repayments as a percentage of disposable income. They show how, far from entering a period of growth, as Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng want, intense pressure on the nearly 7 million households in the United Kingdom who own their property with a mortgage, has the potential to grind consumption to a halt. Average house prices have risen from £60,700 in 1989 to £282,800 today, a rise of over 450% over the past 33 years. We have already drawn attention to the devastating impact of this on young adults, as the average age of first-time home ownership approaches 40. But it also means, for an 80% loan to value, the mortgage on the average house value is £226,240. An additional 5% in interest charges would therefore incur £11,000 per annum. The property market is therefore bracing itself for a significant fall in prices, and hopefully this will in due course enable young people to think more positively about buying their own home. It won't do much, however, for the mainstream support for the Conservative Party. Government must also rethink its way out of using debt as a first port of call in times of trouble. The cost of their bonds is now heavily scarred by increases in both inflation and interest. Index-linked bonds, first introduced in the 1980s, were originally intended to confirm the resolve of government to get inflation under control, but they are now hugely expensive. Meanwhile, the fixed-coupon gilt market is also presenting colossal financing costs. So, we are now hearing more about getting public spending under control in the debate about benefits, something which the Labour Party also clearly doesn't understand, following their comments about simply using the now reintroduced 45% tax rate for higher earners to increase spending on the NHS. The fundamental problem with escalation of peacetime public debt started after World War II with the introduction of the welfare state. Instead of targeting support where it was really needed, the socialist mantra of free health and education for all had become a universal bribe for all political parties in order to keep their voters on side. It has therefore driven the massive rise in debt, while at the same time depleting the resources available for safety net provision. If we want to get public debt under control, we must tackle the universal provision of services to all. We must give people more choice and encourage them to pay for these services where they can afford to do so. Overextended debt has taken decades to reach these ridiculous levels, and weaning ourselves off it will not happen overnight. But we need to move to a mindset where debt is a form of investment for the future, to be drawn down carefully and sparingly, not to be used either for chasing higher and higher prices or for incessant government bailouts.